Some of you know Isaiah chapter 40 is my very favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Are you allowed to have a favorite chapter in the Bible? If you are, mine is Isaiah chapter 40. I was a probably a junior in college, I think, and I had a friend who was leading a Bible study at Meredith Dorm at Purdue University, and he said, hey, I need some help leading this, and I was not qualified at all, because to be honest, there were many reasons why I wasn't qualified, but one of them was I didn't read a Bible, the Bible all that much in that season of my life, so I didn't really know a whole lot to communicate, and he said, hey, I just need, I just need a sidekick. Okay, I'll go, and uh, as some of you know, I did not anticipate becoming a pastor early in my life or plan on it in any way. But I remember one day I was, I was responsible for, for leading the study, and I don't know how, but I stumbled upon Isaiah 40, this passage that reveals the magnitude of God, the generosity of God, the immensity of God. And it finally, in some ways, by the Holy Spirit, opened up my eyes to just how incredible God actually is. He is a God that can't be exhausted or controlled or manipulated. He is so immense and powerful that nothing can compare to him. And yet that is the exact same God that chooses to love us. The exact same God who cares so much about his people that he comforts them in their affliction. The exact same God who showers forgiveness on the very people who have wronged him the most. Isaiah 40 is one of these beautiful chapters in the Bible that reveals to us just how incredible our God is. So often when we think about the Bible, we think about what the Bible says about us. And yes, it is important what the Bible says about us, but it's fundamentally not a story about us. It's fundamentally a revelation of who God is. And so this epiphany season, I thought it would be appropriate to preach a sermon series on Isaiah chapter 40. If you're thinking, how can Tim get seven sermons out of Isaiah 40? It won't be that hard. I think we could probably spend a year in Isaiah 40 and it wouldn't exhaust it. As you know, you know, epiphany is a season where we look at the mission of God in the world to reach a lost and a dying world with his gospel of grace. But I thought it would be appropriate to actually look at who is this God that has chosen to rescue his lost people. So first, as we look at Isaiah chapter 40, I want to look at the context of Isaiah 40. How did we get here? So often in our lives, we ask that question, how did I get to this place? Why did Israel need deliverance? What was going on in which he, God comes to them promising deliverance and rescue and comfort? Something has gone awry. And so we have to know how they got there. Second, we're going to look at the nature of God as being the one who not only forgives, but comforts those that have wronged him the most. He goes beyond what we can even expect. And then finally, we'll look at him as the God that will go to immeasurable lengths to rescue his people. He flattens mountains. He raises valleys to make a highway to rescue his people. And that is revealed fundamentally in the unthinkable act of the incarnation, where God does far more than raising valleys and flattening mountains. He becomes human to save us. So if you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And if you don't have your Bible with you, there are Bibles in front of you in the pews. Isaiah 40 says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low to the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh shall, shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, have you ever found yourself in a place in life where you say, how did I get here? You're in a place where you can't imagine you would ever be. Your marriage is completely on the rocks and divorce feels inevitable. You say, how did we get here? What happened? How long have we been on this trajectory? What the person I once loved is now the person that brings the most pain. Or maybe you have a sin in your life where, where you once ran to that sin to feel in control in some ways. Because that's one of the reasons why we run to sin. I can feel in control here. But now that sin controls you. And you ask, how did I get here? Well, in Isaiah chapter 40, we come upon the people of Judah. If you know, Isaiah covers a span of history in which Israel has been divided into two kingdoms, right? You have the um, northern kingdom, which has already fallen to the Assyrians, and they've gone wildly apostate. The southern kingdom, we find out later in Lamentations, has gone apostate, but not quite as terribly as early, but then something terrible happens. We see in Isaiah chapter 39 what occurs, there's, it's interesting, there's about a 50-year gap between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40. This is actually the big hinge point in Isaiah. And in Isaiah 39, we see the king of the southern kingdom, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah does something incredibly foolish. He lets the Babylonians see all of his storehouses all of his military capabilities. He shows them everything. And then what ends up happening? They figure it out. So they figure out they can come and defeat them. But it's fascinating how Hezekiah responds to this. If you would turn with me just one chapter before so we can see how we got here. How we got here is in Isaiah chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in this his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Super brilliant move here, bud. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. 
nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, I repent. No, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Nothing more can describe in many ways the state of the current church. As long as it's fine in my days, that's all I care about. As long as I'm okay, as long as I make it to retirement, who cares what church we're handing on to our children? And we do this in our own lives too. As long as I have an immediate blessing from something, as long as I experience an immediate sense of satisfaction, I don't care about tomorrow's consequences. And we can do this in small ways and we can do this in big ways. But later, we ask, how did I get here? How did I get to this place in my life? And there's always a story that led you there. There are always small compromises that seem to be wonderful at the time. Hezekiah was like, I'm the man, check it all out, right? Look at my glory and my pride and what did it lead to? His and his children's long-term destruction. You know, we refuse to forgive because we have a false sense of justice. And then that lack of forgiveness becomes resentment and it eats our hearts up and we become an isolated, angry person. And we ask, how did I get here? Well, there's a story to how you got there. You had an immediate sense of satisfaction, your own demand of justice that left you in a place of alienation and isolation. You know, we never tell our children we're sorry for the wrongs we commit against them because we do commit wrongs against our children. And then we wonder why they don't want to talk to us when they become adults. We give ourselves over to the need to control everything. And it's interesting. It's often based on fear, right? When we're afraid, we need to control. But you know what? People don't like being controlled very much. And when your immediate sense of fear leads to the need to control, that what ends up happening is you drive everybody away from you. And you ask, how did I get here? And you might think, I'm not a mean person. No, you just try to control everybody and they ended up walking away. That's how it goes. You know, I think about this one. We consume wildly partisan media constantly because it's easy and it's entertainment. And then what happens? Our society becomes increasingly fractionalized. And not only does the person that consumes the opposite media, not only are they a person that you disagree with, they're a person that you fear and dislike. And then we never actually own the fact that what we're doing is leading to the dissolving of the greatest nation in the history of the world and a potential inevitable civil war. And we'll say, well, we didn't have anything to do with that. Yes, you did. You added to the division in your time, which has a massive consequence for your children. Here's one that I'm going to say in absolute love. I need everyone's ears to open up in love, especially young parents. I worry that some of you are going to be in my office in 15 years in tears 
because you're saying, what happened to my children? And I probably won't say it at the time because it's not right to heap it on then. But I'm going to look back and I'm going to say, you know, you taught them to choose everything over church and the communion of saints. That hobbies and sports and subtle inconveniences take priority over the communion of saints. And we are social creatures. If you look at all the sociological research, it's parents with an active faith, parents that talk about their faith and commitment to the communion of saints. And then I'm just going to want to say, what did you think was going to happen? And I don't want that to be your story. Our short-term joys, where we make subtle compromises, end up in long-term griefs. And we ask, how did we get here? And so often in our lives, it's because we pick the expedient an easy option over the difficult obedience to God. And we see this in Isaiah 39. We see it in our own lives. We see it in our world. And we ask, how did we get here? But it's interesting. It's precisely here, precisely here that God meets his people. It's precisely in the place where his people are crying out to him, living in the consequences of their sin and Hezekiah's, that he doesn't abandon them or leave them. It's precisely there that he comes to their rescue. Look back at Isaiah 40 with me. This is roughly 50 to 70 years in the future. We don't really know. It's, it's notoriously complicated. This, this little shift is notoriously complicated. We don't need to get into it. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah 40 is, at the end of the day, far more about the grace of God and the goodness of God and who God is than it is about our iniquities. It is far more about the God who delivers, the God who pardons, the God who forgives, the God who comforts, than it is about the disastrous state of Judah. And who has this God revealed himself to be? He's the God who, who pardons. He's the God who ends warfare, meaning he brings peace. And he is the God who brings comfort. You know, I was thinking about this recently. It's one thing to bring peace. It's one thing to forgive. It's a whole nother thing to comfort the very one who has wronged you. To comfort the very one who has wronged you the most. And that's who God reveals himself to be. You know, um, this past week, every year is a very hard week for me. Because as some of you know who have been around for a long time, January 2nd was the day where my life really turned upside down. It was the day that uh, my, my little cousins, Annie and Caroline, were killed in a car wreck. They were like my little sisters. We're a Hoosier family, and so we're close. We're very connected. Some of you remember, you know, what it was like. My preaching shifted. And, you know, you're probably like, man, Timmy, you used to be smart. You got dumb after that. You know, just years of grief. We're eight years in now, and it's still a grief. 
because we were so close. They were 16 and 18. Some of you know they were driving in Indiana countryside, as teenagers often do, and it was Annie and Caroline and their two boyfriends, and they were all piled in the front seat of their pickup truck. And uh, what we were told was that the steering column broke or something broke, and the car went out of control, and they, they hit a wall, um, and they died. Everyone except the driver. And so I immediately went home. I was asked to preach at the funeral, and they, last time I saw them, they'd asked me to preach at their wedding. So I said, of course, I'll, I'm going to preach their funerals. Um, I remember it was wor- the, wor- you know, the worst day of my life. And uh, the young boy who was driving, he was there. He was in a neck brace, and his face was covered in cuts from glass. He still looked concussed, but I think he was just in shock. People tended to avoid him. I remember thinking, ah, why am I so angry at this kid? He, you know, this was an accident. I have to go communicate something to him. So I went over to him, and I couldn't hug him. I mean, he was really beat up. So I shook his hand and just said, I've heard a lot of good things about you, and I'm sorry. And that was my way of trying to say, you know, I forgive you. You didn't mean to do this. Well, as it turned out a few years later, um, if our family didn't need any more trauma, it, it turned out the police started investigating things, and the thought that it was an accident became suspicious, a little fishy. It didn't seem to add up. And so they found out it wasn't an accident. It was, it was reckless driving. He was, I think, hopping a railroad track. And there's no young guy, high schooler in Indiana, who has not at least attempted to hop a railroad track, okay? Um, And I remember talking to my mother, and I said, Mom, I already forgave him. I forgave him to his face. I can't retract the forgiveness. What are we supposed to do? And the justice system didn't do a very good job, in my opinion. But it's my opinion. But I remember thinking, I can't retract my forgiveness, but I really don't want to see that guy ever again. I really don't want to. I don't want to be in the same room as the guy. If I never see him, I'll be pretty happy. And this week I was thinking, we've done something far worse to God. We killed his very son. Each of our sins laid his perfect son upon the cross in our place. And he not only forgives us, he not only brings us peace, he is precisely the one who chooses to comfort us in our grief. He's the one that says, you killed my son, but you can now take his place. His room is now empty, but now it's yours. And when you lie awake at night grieving, your responsibility, I'll be the very one to comfort you. That's who our God is. What is the Bible just showing us again and again? He does what we can't do. He goes beyond what any of us would ever go to. He is the God that not only pardons us, not only forgives us, not only brings us peace. He is the very God that says, now you will be my children and I will be your father. 
And in your grief and in your confusion, in your sorrow, I will be the one to comfort you. That's something I can't carry. That's something I'm not big enough for. I know most of you. I don't think anyone here is that big either. And yet that is precisely who our God is. Isaiah 40 is far less about us and it's far more about the grand nature of our God that he not only forgives, he not only pardons, he not only brings peace, but the very ones who have wronged him the most are the ones that he chooses to draw nearest to himself and comfort. That's who our God is. But that's not how our passage ends. Our passage keeps going and showing the majesty, the goodness, the glory of our God, that he is the one who will go to any length to rescue his people. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Some of you see that this is the the words of John the Baptist. It's continued in it. But what, what is being communicated here? Impossible things are happening. In our imagination, I guess, you know, now we have excavators. But back then they didn't, right? You can't flatten a mountain and you can't raise a valley. This is miraculous. Only God can do that so that we can get to God, right? Wrong. It's not so that we have a highway to God. It's so that God has a highway to us. God doesn't make a path and say, all right, walk it, and I'm waiting at the end of it. Rather, the God that is revealed all over Scripture is the God who comes to our deliverance by his initiative and his power. And we see that this is precisely where what? The glory of the Lord is revealed. In what? His deliverance. But we think, okay, finding a mountain, raising a valley, impossible task. A far greater, more majestic, more incredible task is what? That the infinite God of the universe, the one who nothing can compare to, the one is, I hope that you read and reread Isaiah 40 during the next seven weeks, you'll see, how can this God become human? How can this God actually humble himself to this state? Only by a sheer act of his power and his will. So often we think that power is revealed in like a weaker being, you know, engaging a stronger being, right? You know, but... (laughs) A dog can't really relate to a mouse, right? They can't. But a human being can have a mouse as a pet. It actually is a mark of of intelligence and capacity and strength to be able to descend. It's a mark of C.S. Lewis's brilliance that he could write a children's novel. Many brilliant people can't write children's novel. It was his superior brilliance that he could take his knowledge and bring it to children. And the great power of our God is that he could become a baby for our deliverance. And then what do we see? What else does it reveal to us? Not only his power, 
but it reveals to us that there is no lengths that he will not go to to save his children. So often, what do we think? That person is stuck down in a, in a crag and they're part of the rocky soil and God is never going to get to them. And so we give up praying for them. We give up sharing the gospel with them. We give up hoping against hope that the Lord Jesus Christ can find them. But what is revealed here? There is no length that he will not go to. There is no one who is too far away. Judah is in absolute hopelessness, and he says, I will be your hope. So my question for you today is, is there someone in your life that you've given up hope in? You've just grown weary of praying for them. You've grown weary of sharing the gospel with them. Or there's someone that you haven't even tried to share the gospel with because you think, oh, their worldview is so contradictory to the faith, there's no way they could hear it. We've all had that happen in our lives. But what do we see here? It is God who will go find them. It's not your work. This is the God who can level mountains, who can raise valleys, who can become incarnate. And he can save even that person that you think is the furthest gone. So my encouragement to you is don't give up praying. Don't give up sharing. Don't think anyone is too far away because he can build a highway to anyone he chooses to. My prayer is that during this series through Isaiah 40, our eyes would be open to the goodness of our God. That he is the God who meets us in precisely that place where we say, how did I get here? And he brings his peace, his forgiveness, his comfort. And those where we say, how on earth could he get there? How on earth could he save them? He's the one who's powerful enough to do anything, even save lost men and women like you and like me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are far stronger, far greater, far more wondrous than we can ever know. Lord, would you open up our eyes to see who you are and therefore to see rightly who we are, those that you love, those that you shower with your comfort, those that you have made peace with. Lord, would we not grow weary of sharing that hope with the lost in a dying world, to the glory of your name.